0: The following is a paid presentation. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the staff and management of Shiawassee Radio. This is your cell. This is your bunk. This is the jail visit on Shiawassee Radio, live from the Cofield Oil and Propane Studios. Here's attorney Bill Amadeo.
1: I'm Bill Amadeo, from McManus and Amadeo, and Grable and Associates. And today. We're going to talk about July 23rd, 2004. But I guess there's a story that has to be told to lead up to that. Kind of weird place with this whole thing. Uh, I was talking to Josh Strickland last night a little bit. He needs more content for the jail visit. People tend to want to hear my stories, so here we are. And I was talking to somebody late last night. You know, and it's weird. When people from the past reach out to you, I kind of got this impression now that quite often there's agendas attached. Maybe they need a lawyer. Maybe they need money. Maybe they just need a sounding board, whatever. But it's rare that certain people that I was not connected to for years basically reach out for no agenda. And this one person reached out. And she's an interesting individual. Life has dealt her some tough hands. And I start thinking about this one time we had a class together. I guess the story should back up from there. Junior year of high school, Miss Gandia had big plans for me. After my sophomore year, she said to me, Miss Gandhi, who I love dearly, she wanted me in AP English with Carol Schreiben. Carol Schreiben, just not my cup of tea, but she wanted me in AP English. She saw my writing ability as a possibility to bigger things, and she wanted me in this class. Now, for those you who like to mock my legal writing, understand something journalism writing and creative writing are very different. And, you know, I had this knack. So Gandhi wanted me in those classes. There was somebody else she wanted in those classes. There was this female. We'll just call her female. I'm going to put names out there. Very different tracks. But this was somebody who came from the same background I came from. And I think Gandhi's sole potential in the two of us and they kind of put us into this situation together where we're going to take ap english together that was also the year of mock trial you know and with mock trial mock trial changed everything but we get into this class and it's kind of a, like a metaphor for life you know we get into carol Schreiben's english class junior year let me break that down carol shryman just somebody I'm not a fan of. She was like one of these people that thought she was better than everybody else. The kids in the AP English class were basically a group of assholes. <laughs> they had money, their families had power, or at least perceived to, you know? And what Gandhi wanted us to do was break into this world. And one of the first assignments that at least comes to mind, was The Glass Menagerie by Tennessee Williams. There was a breakdown of The Glass Menagerie. Like, we had to do these, like, character sketches, you know? And the one character that spoke to me was Tom Wingfield. Let's break down The Glass Menagerie for a minute. There's these characters that are Amanda Wingfield, which is the mother... And Amanda was kind of a bitter woman, you know, her husband left her, she's raising the family, and her favorite child is Laura. Laura Wingfield was this girl with social anxiety, right? She would make it through high school, she didn't make it through her secretarial program, and in Amanda's mind, it was basically that Laura had to find a man. And Amanda Wingfield, she kind of lived back on this past when she was real pretty and had this power and such. And she wanted that for Laura. She didn't really seem to like Tom. Tom was the older brother. And Tom was working in, like, a shoe factory. He was supporting the family. But he also, like, the bills weren't always being paid. So there was this perception that maybe tom was storing some of the money away because he wanted to escape tom had a real interesting lifestyle like he would work in the factory then at night he'd like read poetry and write and stuff like that it was kind of called between two worlds but tom would disappear at night you wouldn't know where tom was and it's kind of pissed off amanda because amanda wanted control of her children Now, keep in mind, Tom is in, like, his early to mid-20s, and he's working in the factory. He's supporting the family. Like, why is this man in his early to mid-20s having to answer to his mother? But he was. And one of the things that Mom wanted from Tom was to find Laura a man. So Tom brings his boy home, Jim O'Connor. Jim works in the factory with Tom. Jim was like a good athlete in high school. He ended up taking a factory job, and it it appears at least that Laura had a big crush on Jim way back when. Okay. Tom's trying to hook his sister up. And I think they're dancing or something, and one of the glass menageries falls. She had like these glass things where she kept them like souvenirs, like people would keep like little ornaments today. And when this one piece of glass breaks it was kind of symbolic that this family was shattered turns out that laura had a big crush on jim back in the day and this was like her dream guy but laura's got a limp she's got social anxiety laura's got an array of problems physically and socially amanda's trying to fix laura while beating up jim while beating up tom and all tom wants to do is get the hell out of there tom is trying to find his escape And there's also some belief that maybe tom was secretly in love with laura and mr wingfield the father he rolled he just left them it's a lot of weird going on here but we're doing these character sketches and that's why i get tom wingfield now me and the girl that miss scandia wanted to be in these high classes we're working on these character sketches together. I remember that fall, like I'm playing travel baseball and I'm in these high classes. I'm battling dyslexia. I don't know it at the time and I made the mock trial team. And when I made mock trial, things changed a lot, but I made mock trial during this assignments. We'll get to mock trial later, possibly. Maybe not. We'll see how this goes, but I'm working with this girl and we're going over these character sketches and to me tom spoke to me you know tom wanted to escape tom is reading his literature while working in the factory tom's supporting his family tom wants out man he wants out he wants to go and i thought to myself in that life i'm like wow i want to escape i want to leave atlantic city i want to do this i want to do that Tom spoke to me on so many levels. And we had to give oral presentations on these characters. And the girl I'm working with, when I'm breaking Tom down to her, she's feeling everything I'm saying. She was doing Laura's character sketch. So her and I are working late one day in Miss Gandia's classroom, and I'm breaking down Tom, and she just starts crying saying, oh my God, you just get it. And I said, do you see how Tom is like us? We're both these poor white kids who are minorities in our neighborhood. We're trying to get in the college, trying to do this, trying to do that, and she felt it. What I didn't know at the time is she was kind of dating this guy from Margate. Now Margate, we talked about Lake City before, right? Separation of powers. Atlantic City, Brigantine, this way. Ventnor Margate, that way. Wealth, this way. Poverty, that way. Caucasians, this way. Minorities, that way. Being white in the minority area, this influx. But in this class, we're put between two worlds. What Miss Gandia wanted us to do was break into that world. That's what this was all about, right? Pretty girl. And this one Margate guy is kind of seeing her on the side. But she's excited. He's a more kid with money. He likes me a little bit. But she's not telling me this, because in some ways we were connecting, but I didn't fit into that world. She was going to fit into that world easier than myself. But I'm breaking down Tom Wingfield. Okay. So we get in the class, and we're doing our oral presentations. And Tom Wingfield comes up, and it's my turn to speak, so I'm breaking it down. Like, he wants to escape. Tom is burdened with these responsibilities. But he's truly an academic at heart. He wants to leave the family. He wants to make his own way. He wants to do this. He wants to do that. And I'm the only one that sees Tom Wingfield in this light. And the class starts laughing. What I heard from the class was Tom's a factory worker. He just wants to find love. He wants to fit in with his family. Like, Are we reading the same thing? no that's not what he wants he wants out don't you see it well where's he at, at the end of the night i'll tell you where he's at he's either having an affair with someone he's either fighting his homosexual tendencies he's either trying to find other people to read literature with but he doesn't want to be in that f- house i can't be the only one that sees this and back then in the 40s he couldn't really be himself where i was going was i'm this white kid from the ghetto i want the f- Now, I relate to Tom and the girl that Miss Gandia put me in the class with, they turn to her. What do you think of Bill's analysis? Now, she was crying so connected to my analysis 48 hours before. And she says, I don't see where Bill's going with this. I think he's wrong. Really? Now, I'm not throwing her under the bus. Because we were sharing our notes and stuff, but why'd she turn on me? What happened here? Day later, we go back to Miss Gandia's classroom. And I break things down for Miss Gandia. And the girl goes, Well, look, I was just scared to say what I thought about the analysis. I didn't mean to throw Bill under the bus, but I was scared. And Miss Gandia is kind of furious. Because Miss Gandia, and this was a metaphor for life, she goes, I put you guys in that classroom. To see things differently. I put you guys in this classroom. To speak your mind. Bill did that. You didn't. She goes. If you do not have the free flow of expression. If you don't use your brilliance. And your work ethic. To escape these barriers. You two are never going to leave this area. Do you get that? There's going to be a wall up. And you have to beat through that wall. And Gandhi goes, I want you both out of that class. She goes, Amadeo, you're doing the mock trial thing. But what this woman's going to do, Shriben, in her opinion, well, she's going to fail you both. It's going to hurt your chances for college. Because you take regular classes, get out of there. I understand something. Miss Gandhi tells me to do something. I'm going to do it. Okay. I'll go to Miss Latham, a guidance counselor. I'll go back into average English or whatever. And I'll follow what my mother figure told me to do. Well, this girl didn't listen. She just didn't. She goes, no, I'm not leaving that class. And Miss Gandhi goes, why aren't you leaving that class? She goes, I want to be there with them. She goes, you saw what just happened. When you speak your mind... They didn't accept you. Now, I'm more for you breaking into that world, but I don't want your grades being hurt. So she says something that kind of stuck with me. If Bill leaves that class, my grades will be fine. I need Bill to leave that class. Leave me alone in there with them and I'll be fine. And I'm sitting like, wait, so I'm the problem? She goes, I want to be with them. They don't want you in there, Bill. And I said, why don't they want me in there? I'm really curious about that. She goes, well, this whole mock trial thing is bothering a lot of people. Excuse me? She goes, you're doing this mock trial thing, and when you do your mock trial thing, I don't know what you do in those things, but you're different. You're upsetting them. They keep saying how you don't go with the flow. You're not one of them. I said, no, I'm not one of them. I don't wanna be one of them. Mock trial was my chance to escape. Hey, I'm Tom Wingfield in that moment, right? I'm out. It's like the end of the tunnel. She didn't see it like that. So she tells me, I'm seeing this one guy. And he was a Margate guy. She goes, and he said, nobody can know that we're seeing each other, but I really like him, and he doesn't want me being friends with you. Okay. So I said to her, you know, you and I kind of connect. Um... I like you. But you're going to basically break off the friendship because he doesn't want you with me. But yet he won't take you out in public, right? And I'm like, he doesn't want you. He wants to doesn't he he doesn't know you. He basically wants to f you behind his friend's back and then joke about it how I f the good looking girl from the hood. And she goes, I'll take what I can get. Okay. She goes, It's not personal. But I need to be with them. I want to be with them. I'm happy with them. And Miss Gandhi is furious right now, right? Because Miss Gandhi is saying, you can understand one thing. You guys are 15, 16-year-old kids right now. If you lose your identity in trying to fit in with them, you're never going to be who the world needs to see. You're not going to be the star of the show. You're going to be an extra. That's what's going to happen here. And the girl's like, no, I'm I'm happy being an extra. No, I'm just sitting there. I'm like, fuck that. I'm happy being no extra. So Gandy says to me, I know you're hurt right now. She wants to end the friendship. I want you out of that class. But you got to trust me, Amadeo. I know what's best for you. No problem. I'm following you your lead, Gandy. That's it. And the girl and I were done. When I said we were done, not even friends anymore, on any level. We'd be walking in the halls. She would ignore me. And I just started to just view her as anybody else in the crowd. But the thing was, when she was with him, he would only give her attention when his friends weren't around. And then he would laugh about her. And eventually... To built up to this horrible complex and her life today is tragic because the moment of acceptance was fleeting right she wanted to be part of that group so bad and the agenda was and i look at like an undercover cop going too far miss Dia put us in this class to show the world That these Atlantic City kids were smarter than the market kids. We had free thought. We'd break shit down. We'd analyze. We wouldn't lose our identity. We would show that our identity was different. It was unique. It was powerful. We got in there. I got the memo, right? And Tom f***ing Wingfield in the Glass Menagerie, that was my memo. Boom. Hit it. And she, um... When she got in there, it was like going to this nice restaurant or this big party. It's like, oh, my God. I don't want to leave. Even if I can't eat off the menu, I will take whatever crumbs they give me. That is where we were at. And I'm furious because Miss Gandia, like, that day, it was like you were either Team Gandia or Team Shriven. And Gandhi... I can't say enough good things about Miss Gandia, you know, that woman, that black woman that saw a poor white kid in Atlantic City with some talent who almost choked me out when I was going to quit mock trial, who was there when my grandfather died, who basically saw something before anybody else could see something. I came in one day shortly after this whole thing imploded where I'm back in the average classes and this girl is staying in there and I see Gandhi crying. And she's alone, it's after hours, and I'm leaving my trial practice. I just went to her and said, like, What's wrong? And she's like, Amadeo, I lost her. And what Gandhi meant by that was she felt that this girl was never going to be accepted into that world, was going to get scarred emotionally. The academics were going to be a secondary thing. And she was, I lost her, I can never lose you. Please promise me you'll never leave me. I didn't quite get the whole thing back then, but I think what Miss Candia was saying is that you know, look at it in life today. No matter how big the case is, um, how much money's on the table, you can't lose yourself. That's a lot to swallow for a sixteen-year-old kid. When I look at the girl, I feel bad for her today. You understand where we came from, right? Where we came from. Brutality, man. It was just the beatings and the fear. And being a minority kid in the neighborhood. Understanding that we didn't fit into that world. And when we get in there, there was like emotional manipulation in the suburbs versus physical brutality in Ducktown. And back in Maryland and Virginia Avenue courts. We go on and on. And she saw a lifeline. She saw this lifeline to fit in there. I'm not hating her for that. But we lost something along the way. Like, our mission was to show them that we were just as good, if not better. And uh, when Gandhi wanted me out of AP English, that was fine, because I only was there because she instructed me to do it in the first place. And I guess... What it came down to, even being broke at 16 years old, it was, I didn't want that world. I wanted the approval of Miss Gandia. That's what I wanted. And I figured the benefits of that world and all that would come on my own terms whenever that would happen. But if I listen to Miss Gandia, I'm going to get where we need to be. And with her, it was kind of like... I see a way in. And by seeing a way in, I saw a way out. I see a way out of poverty. Right? I don't have to walk home and worry about getting beaten or raped. They like me. They'll take care of me. They weren't gonna take care of her. She missed that. And there were so many reasons to like her but the one thing I wanted to break down to her is they don't know you. They wouldn't understand you. You're breaking in because you have a pretty face, a nice body, but they're not inviting you to their homes. They're not bringing you to the prom. They're not taking you out in public. They're using you because they viewed your desperation to be in that world. It was so clear. It's like playing poker with somebody and they're showing you their god cards. And it was this moment where it's just like, huh, what do we do? And when we separated, um, to me, choosing Miscandia over the initial benefits of fitting in wasn't even a debate i viewed miscandia as somebody who was going to guide me through the chaos and when you were sliding through that chaos right um when you broke into that world for a minute they put down Miss Gandia. carol Schreiber would say things about Miss Gandia, and i would defend her and the other individual would just sit there and nod because i couldn't be kicked out of that room i'm finally in that room they're saying to themselves when you come from where we come from you get two types of personalities right there's either the person who evolves into that world and when they get there whatever it takes to stay there they'll do that may mean turning on loved ones, turning on friends, whatever, but I have to stay in that club. And then there's the other personality. The other personality is like I don't give a f- if you like me or not, I'm gonna run you over if I have to. That's what Miss Gandhi was trying to tell us because that personality was going to sustain a lot longer than the other. There's times we have to mold our personalities to fit into a situation. You can't walk into certain courtrooms and just say, Hey, fuck you. But you could learn to say fuck you in a manner where you maintain who you are and you advocate for your client. But you just don't roll over because you want to stay in that courtroom. And today, um, I think back to AP English. And it was not a fun few months in that class, but... It set the tone for so many things. It made me understand stuff. Made me understand the differences between people. Made me understand just how genius like Dolores Gandia was. She put us into an emotional scenario. Which was either going to make or break us. And she did it for our benefit. Always be grateful about that. Miss Miss Gandia every day. Alright. We're not going to get to the mock trial thing today. Um... I'll get into another time, but that was AP English. Glass Menagerie, Tom Wingfield, and two kids from the hood that were put into a very unique academic situation.
0: The Jail Visit with Attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio.
1: Let me just tell you, um... I think sometimes in life we just um we lose sight of things and lose sight of people. You know, we move forward. We leave things behind. Sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. And I was in the gym yesterday. And um I got my Spotify on. And a song suggestion came on. And it was Drama Meme by Modest Mouse, which I think was nineteen ninety-six. I'll post a song later. If you never heard Dramamine by Modest Mouse. It goes on for like five minutes. There's only like two minutes of lyrics. But it's pretty powerful. And it made me think of somebody. Somebody from the past. Kind of an ex. Kind of not an ex. But I'm going to tell the story today. And uh, it was one of those moments when you were leaving New Jersey. It kind of defined that. Something had closure in it. I'm not about the relationship. I'm talking about moving on, taking a chance. Just gambling on yourself. That's what happened that night. Let's kick it back to when I'm 18. I'm 18 years old. And I'm working as a bar reporter, right? Now, many people don't know. I always worked at Tropicana. But I picked up a second job. When I picked up this second job... I was just trying to make some extra money for Aunt Mary and Mom. I was going to community college full-time. I was working full-time at Trop and part-time at this other casino. So sleep was really like, not part of the equation. You're taking 16 credits and you're working, let's say, 50 hours a week in the casino. And the casino taught me so many things. And I look back at my time at Tropicana as a pretty powerful experience. There was so much intellect at Tropicana, and people don't realize that. I've always said I learned more bartending than I ever learned studying for the bar. But I'm 18 years old, and I'm a bar porter. I'm at this other casino. And it was different, because at Tropicana, I had my group of friends. At this other place, I was just kind of a loner. And they sent me down to this service bar. Now, for you guys outside of Atlantic City, a service bar is where the cocktail waitresses get all their drinks to go serve to the customers. And I get thrown into this bar. And the first thing they tell you to do is cut lemons up. Okay. So I start cutting lemons. There's this girl in the bar. She's a cocktail waitress. She's about 21. Now, at 18... A 21-year-old seems like an older woman, you know? (laughs) She was beautiful. And she had, like, this fiery personality. And she says to me, these lemons are too big, William. You're supposed to make them smaller. Like, oh, okay. She goes, if you don't learn how to cut the lemons, one day when you're a bartender, 20 years from now, you're going to have bad lemons. And she laughed. I said, yeah, okay, thanks for the tip. And I kind of chuckled. And she goes, what's so funny, William? And I'm thinking to myself, I'm not gonna be working here 20 years from now, but I'm thinking that inside. And she kept calling me William. So I said to her, I'll cut the lemon smaller for you. She kept calling me William, like antagonizing me. I hate the name William. So I said, you know what? Can you just call me Bill? Bill would be a lot better than William. She goes, you know what? Why don't I just f***ing call you B? She goes, B seems fitting. I said, why B? just because it's the first letter of Bill. As South Jersey people, we cut names short. She goes, and I like the letter B, so just deal with it. Okay. Whatever. So here I am, cutting up these lemons. I get my break. I go up to the cafeteria. I'm sitting alone in the cafeteria. And I got this book out. And I was like studying for a, was like a book report that Tom Bagosian at Atlanta Community College made us do. He was still making us do book reports, freshman year of college. And Tom Boghossian was an ass He was somebody who couldn't make it as a writer. He used to try to crush young dreams, but I needed to get the grades in his course, to move on, to stop them, blah, blah, whatever. So I got my book out and I'm taking notes. And she comes up to the cafeteria. She sits down with me. And she goes, what are you doing? I said, I'm just doing homework. She goes, okay, B, chill out with the homework. She goes, you get done the same time I do tonight. Like, yeah. She goes, well, come to the bar. We'll hang out. I said, hey, I appreciate that, but I can't. She goes, what do you mean you can't? Now, understand something. She's beautiful and 21. I'm an 18-year-old kid right out of high school. Everybody wanted her, right? And it was understandable. And she's asking me to go hang out at this bar, and I'm telling her, hey, I got homework to do. So it was a shot to her ego. So she goes, maybe you don't understand things. She goes, I'm asking you to hang out tonight. And you're going to do homework instead? And I said to her, listen, I appreciate the offer. But I have this book report due. I got to get to my second job. I got to do this and I got to do that. And right there, was such a shot to her ego, right? She says, I don't understand. Like, I just kind of asked you out. I said, well, that's cool that you asked me out, but I have homework to do, and I'm not going to get stuck at community college. So I got to get the grades. And she goes, you're really different, aren't you? I said, I don't know. So, so listen, it was really good talking to you, but I got to get back to my homework now. So she walked away kind of pissed off. I go back to work we exchange phone numbers whatever so she tried to go out with me a few times said listen i can't do it around my work schedule so understand this so she's getting really pissed off she's you know here i am asking this kid out who's three years younger than her he's really dedicated to his work eventually we hung out and you know she starts telling me things and she was teaching me a lot about life actually because she was brilliant like, much more intelligent than myself. She had that South Jersey girl thing going on. And for you guys in South Jersey, you know what I'm talking about here. When I say that South Jersey girl thing going on, she was beautiful and she knew it, right? Cool. She'd hook up with older guys. They'd pay her rent. They would do this. They would do that. But she was kind of a drifter. She was in college and she stopped going to college and she's making big money as a cocktail server. She should have just stayed in college and used the cocktail serving as money on the side, but she made it her career. Here's the thing about the casino. When you're working in it part time, when you have a career or in college, it is so cool. But when it becomes your full-time job, it becomes a state of misery. That was my opinion on it. And there's some friends that have made amazing careers in the casino, but it wasn't gonna be me. It just couldn't be me. I knew it could never be me. So, we hung out here and there. Things really took a turn during union elections. I wasn't getting into law school right away and I wrapped myself into the union. And many of you guys know that story. I was the youngest person ever nominated to run for union president Atlantic City. And Bob McDevitt and I had wars Bob mcdevitt's the union president i think he's still the union president he's a nobody but he had control and everybody's fighting for this hundred thousand dollar a year job which is fascinating to me today but being the president of local 54 was such a big deal and i got so involved with the union because i wasn't getting into law school the lsat was kicking my ass no law schools are taking me i'm getting deeply involved with politics So, as I got involved in union politics, she got really involved in union politics. We were on different sides of the coin. And McDevitt won the election. Um, She was doing her thing. I was doing my thing. And my thing was at this point, I'm bartending at Tropicana 40 plus hours a week. I'm doing stuff with the union, and I'm studying for the LSAT. That was my mission in life. At one point, we start dating. Now, nobody knows we're dating in the casinos. It was fascinating. Everybody knew your business, right? So if you were dating someone or hooking up with somebody in the same casino, it was public knowledge. It was the Facebook newsfeed of the day, right? If you were dating somebody in another casino, you could try to keep it under wraps. And you want to keep it under wraps for the following reasons. There were always going to be people that were pissed off if you dated somebody in another casino. Or somebody in another craft. We all became creatures of learned behavior, you know? And when you actually got outside your little comfortable bubble, things got weird. But her and I, we were dating. I was really into her. Um, completely infatuated with her at the time. And I remember... She used to play Modest Mouse, this song Drama Mean in my car all the time. That was like her thing. She loved Modest Mouse. She had her issues, as did I. When I say I had my issues, my issues were I had to get the f out of Atlantic City. Her issues were she was trying to find herself. And remember one year for her birthday, I got her these what I thought were amazing diamond earrings at the time. I paid $750 for these diamond earrings, which was a load of money back then. Today, I wouldn't even give that as a gift. It'd be like, whatever. But back then, that was a big number for me, right? And she loved these earrings. But after she got the earrings and it was her birthday, we just kind of split. She moved on to some older guy or whatever. It was somebody with more money at the time. And we kind of lost track with each other. We were cool, though, you know? We were definitely better as friends and lovers, in my opinion. But she had a way of coming up with a sense of brilliance, right? She was a good poker player too, so we had that in common. She used to do this thing. Whenever she was kind of nervous, it was like a tell. She didn't smoke a lot of cigarettes, but she would smoke a cigarette and do this thing where her hair would come up over her eye. And that was her way of communicating without saying stuff. You learn this later in time. Anyway, we went our different ways. She ends up going to the Brigada. She's not there anymore, but she was a Brigada babe. When the Brigada opened up in Atlantic City, a bunch of the beautiful waitresses all left their casinos to go over to the Brigada. They were making money hand over fist, they were in the Brigada magazines and the Brigada calendars and all that other stuff. And we'd see each other once in a while, high and by, but that was it. I didn't think a ton about her at that point. She's at the Brigada, I'm at Trop, and I'm going to get in law school. I notice this. But I get in. You know, and I told a story in 2004 how I got in the coolie, and I just said, screw it, I'm leaving. Now, here's one thing about her. She used to wear like these real stylish mittens, right? They were like kind of her thing. It was like one of her calling cards. And one night I'm leaving Tropicana. I'm going over to my condo, which is like two blocks away. And I see this mitten on top of my antenna. That was her way of saying, call me. So I give her a call. I'm like, hey, I think you left something at my house. And she's like, yeah. She goes, we need to talk. Okay. She goes, when are you leaving for Michigan? And I'm like, mm, not. It's going to be soon. How'd you know about that? She goes, never mind. She goes, I will come over. We need to talk, go over some stuff. Sure. So it was... <laughs> July 23rd, 2004. She comes over to my condo. Now, she loved Baileys and coffee. That was her thing, right? So, I, like, had a Baileys and coffee waiting for her. I just got out of work. I worked till, like, 9 that night. It was, it was, it was like, 1 to 9, Tiffany Lounge. And she comes over, at, like, 10 o'clock or something like that. So, here. figure you want the Baileys and coffee. She goes into my apartment. This was just her. You understand her. She had this badass New Jersey girl attitude. She takes a bottle of water, she dumps the water out, she goes to the fridge, she grabs the baileys, and she dumps baileys into this water bottle so she could drink it out of the water bottle. I said, hey, help yourself. She goes, I don't really have to ask you questions, do I? She goes, come on, let's go to the beach. Okay. So we're, we walk down to the beach, she's got her baileys in hand. And she goes, we really need to talk about life. She goes, you're going to leave. I said, yeah, and I'm going to come back to Jersey and be a lawyer. And she said to me, you're never really going to come back. I said, what do you mean by that? She goes, trust me, maybe you'll come back, maybe you won't, but you're never really going to come back. She goes, once you leave, you're gone forever. She goes, I'm kind of jealous about that, but it's what you got to do. So we're sitting on the beach. She's doing the cigarette with the the hair thing. And she throws her phone down for me to say it as somebody's calling. And I see the name on the phone. So, Are you with him now? She goes, kind of. Well, um, so You probably can't hang out too late. So she pulls her hair from her side, she shows that she's got those earrings on. So, oh, nice earrings. She goes, yeah, thanks. She said, what do you tell about those earrings? And she said to me, I don't explain myself to boys, you know that. And she goes, this is the last time I'm ever going to have control of a conversation with you, so you just need to shut the f*** up and listen to me. Okay. And we just talked, and she goes, listen, you were always different. You were always unique. You had something nobody else around here has. You were never going to stay. She goes, and I always felt this insane connection to you, but you were just so different than me. And when I heard you were going to Michigan, she goes, part of me just dropped. Just because I always knew you were going to leave. I didn't know when or how, but I knew you were going to leave. She goes, I'm telling you this, V. When you leave, you're never truly. F- coming back gonna get in the car and it's gonna be over we're all gonna be in memory she goes you'll tell people about me one day you'll say there was this cool girl that was a few years older than you and you bought me these nice earrings and we had a deep connection and i gave you advice on life but that's gonna be it we just talked all night and uh, at the end of the night I said, listen, I know this sounds crazy, but why don't you just come to Michigan with me? You're not happy here. I got some money put away. I'm going for this little school thing. I said, everything. Let's just go. And she laughed. And she says to me, <laughs> Ugh. she says to me, I'm a Jersey girl through and through. I have control here. She goes, I go to Michigan with you within a year. There's going to be some little academic that's going to be in love with you. You're going to forget about me. I'm not losing the power I have here. She goes, I have power here. And you're going to have power everywhere but here. And it was really f***ing deep to hear her say that. You know, you're just sitting there like holy shit. It's one of those moments in time. And um I saw her cry. And I gotta tell you, for a girl this tough, she never showed emotion. And I'm watching her cry and she takes off the earrings and she puts them in her hand and she puts them on top of my shelf in the little apartment. And I said, You're just going to leave those earrings? And she grabs them back. She goes, Nope. These are mine. Go get them, B. She walked out the door. Now, I knew at that moment there's a few things you could do: you could follow her, you could call her, or just sit there and just take in the moment. I just sit there and took in the moment. I kind of knew, as she walked out that door, like, this is the end of South Jersey on so many levels, you know, and a conversation I had with Joe Ribeiro last week kind of made me think, you know, wow, made me think about this particular story. So, every once in a while... I will get a text message where I have a big article out or something, or a big media case, and she'll send me a link to the article and not say anything else. And it's her way of saying, hey, we're rooting for you. That's also her way of saying, it was a good thing you left. And that is my memory of July 23rd, 2004.
0: The Jail Visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus & Amadeo. Connect with McManus & Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio.
1: Today, Scott Gravel, I had a discussion about how when I was a kid, I actually applied for a bartending job at his father's bar. And I was bartending at Tropicana full-time, and I applied for a part-time job at Grable's. And for those of you who don't know, Grable's Atlantic City, it's like an Atlantic City establishment. Like, Grable's was a historic bar. And Scott's brother, Mark, turned me down, said I had lack of experience. And Gra- Scott Grable said today if he had known that Mark Grable turned me down from the bartending job, he never would've hired me at his firm, so. Glad we slipped through the human resource department there. Anyway, third term at Cooley. We are off academic probation, and one of the requirements of being on academic probation was you had to attend these ARC seminars. And ARC is the Academic Resource Center, not to be confused with the other ARC. The ARC had these seminars that were mandated. Well now, I was off AP, but I kept going to these seminars. And Dr. Wilson would be sitting there and she'd be like, oh, so I see you're still in academic probation. I said, no, I'm just attending these voluntarily. And the confusion on the face that you would do extra work when it wasn't required was very bizarre. But I was attending all these extra seminars. I looked at it like it was free tutoring. That term, I had three classes. I had research and writing with Eileen Cavanaugh. I had Civil Procedure One with Al Lynch, who was a former judge. And I had Crim Pro with James Peden. Research and writing was kind of a useless class in my opinion. No problem with Professor Cavanaugh, but you know, they used to like make you run in circles. And no matter what you did with your writing, it didn't seem to be good enough. I ended up doing fine in the course, but it was a bizarre, like, chasing your tail mentality. And I remember all the ones, all the students that really killed it in research and writing and were the great writers, didn't really do much in the real world. But that course was kind of bizarre. It could totally, you were basically assured of a decent grade if you fulfilled all the requirements, but to say you learned something just really wasn't there. So, I mean, it happened. Research and writing was just, like, messing with your mind a little bit. CIPRO-1. Al Lynch. What an amazing guy. Professor Lynch was a, I guess he was a retired judge at that point. And this man, he spoon-fed you the rules of civil procedure. It's one of the few classes at Cooley where I can actually say it was practical. And obviously, I'm not a civil litigator today, but the things we learned in CIPRO, while with Professor Lynch, the guy really cared. He had office hours every week, which was like free tutoring. I used to go to my class on Thursday afternoon, then attend a second class on Monday afternoon. And hear that information a second time I mean, memory was big in his course, and the guy truly wanted his students to succeed. I can't say that about every professor at Cooley, but I will tell you Al Lynch was a great guy. Hope he's doing well. Truly a good man, a great professor. He wanted you to learn. And of my fondest memories of Cooley are in Professor Lynch's class. And then we had James Peden, for crim pro what I could say here is that all the anger I had or have or whatever towards Norman fell what a polar opposite James Peden was a guy who just got it he taught you criminal procedure like somebody who wanted you to be a great criminal lawyer He broke down the course, the Fourth Amendment, and the Fifth and Sixth combined. But the things he taught you on the Fourth Amendment, he had such a passion for the topic. The warrant requirements, the warrant exceptions, there were so many things that Professor Peden broke down in such detail. He gave such practical experience. It was an honor to be in his class, and like Professor Lynch, I used to go to classes twice a week so explain something here to explain something I should say you had a three-hour class once a week that's what you were required to do it cool what I used to do is go to my required class and then I would find out when my professor was teaching another class and if I was allowed to I would sit in there an extra three hours And I know certain people had a problem with that, but it was like learning the stuff two times. And that would be like a mechanism for later in my career. Like if I listened to it more than my competition, if I studied it, if I practiced it more, you know, you get good. My uncle used to say, if you take an asshole and put a pool stick in his hand eight hours a day, he'll become a good pool player. So now if you wanted to actually learn CRIM PRO and civil procedure, let's do it twice. Let's break it apart. And it was third term of law school was a pretty fascinating term. And other people, there were other CRIM PRO professors that in my mind couldn't hold a candle to James Peden. And I will get into a special Peden story later. But remember like other people I know had Professor Beery. I never really cared for Professor Beery because he used to do this thing where he wouldn't actually teach like in a traditional manner. You had to cite a case to do your essay questions. And Beery, you know, I remember years later, Beery and I had become Facebook friends. And I explained to him there was some drama going on at Cooley and he said, you're deleted and blocked. Like, the guy had a really big ego. I know he's a tenured professor there, but I will tell you, the fact that Brandon Beery is a tenured professor and James Peden is no longer employed, you could see why there's certain problems at Cooley. Because Peden Peden not only cared, he dug deep. And I'm going to give you an example. I was at his office at hours one day. There was free tutoring going on. He had me reading something, and my grades went way up my second term, mainly because I was able to type my essays. And P didn't realize I had a form of dyslexia. He experienced it before, what I actually had was dysgraphia. Dysgraphia is like a form of dyslexia, where my handwriting, and everybody knows how bad my handwriting is, but you would see words in reverse, and when you would handwrite it, it would come out in reverse. So it made things really difficult. And James Peden told me of these tests that were out there these exercises so I would do these things with my eyes and these brain teasers and it would help compromise combat the problem I had with dyslexia and I will simply say that if it wasn't for James Peden I know I wouldn't be here today um, what a major asset to the criminal law community he worked with my firm briefly for a while, about a year or two ago. And I mean, I think the drive was a little much for him. He's an older gentleman now, but I will, and I would gladly give Professor Peden work. If anybody's looking for a legal writer or somebody just to pick their brain, it doesn't get better than James Peden. Jim Peden is what criminal law is supposed to be. He's someone that saw a problem I had and addressed it. Took the time to do so when he wasn't required to do so. And he was truly an inspiration. And long after I was out of his class, and I was sitting for my first bar exam, like I would email him and he would just fire back emails. You got this. You know, there was so much negativity at that place Yeah, you had the Norman Fells that told you weren't gonna make it, but Patricia Wilson's who, you know, weren't lawyers but would brag about their lawyerly abilities. I mean, people that, you know, in the grand scheme of things, in my opinion, weren't worth the dirt on your shoes. But then you had somebody like a Jim Peden, somebody like an Al Lynch, like third term, really kind of restored your hope in the legal profession this guy saw that I was having issues reading. He saw, I was seeing the words in reverse, but he also saw how hard I was working. And he said to me one day, when I'm hiring, I'm not looking for the students that just get A's. I'm looking for that B and B minus student, the ones that gotta work their ass off, cause they're the ones that are gonna win those trials. And you know, my grades went way up. Academics weren't really gonna be much of an issue anymore once I started typing and then once I sold it, this graphia was under control. But at that point, you know, it was still kind of a touch and go situation. And having Jim Peden and Al Lynch my third term was such a huge, huge edge to me. You know, it was like this sense of encouragement that you couldn't pay for was priceless. As far as friendships and dating, Cooley was interesting. I was recently talking to someone who I dated and her career has not taken off the way she wanted to take off. Very smart individual, but there was some intoxication there and she was in some courses my second term with me, and she was just laying out some text messages. We'd be real clear with everyone. I work my ass off. Every day, I dedicate my life to criminal. It's the one thing I'm good at. It's the one thing I embrace with the law. I hold discovery the way a strong Christian looks at the Bible. The way an ex-football player just holds that pigskin in their hands. Okay, criminal is really important to me. It's special to me. And when you work 60, 70, 80 hours a week, you know, I think reliving the story, it's more therapeutic for me. It's not meant to put anybody down. Do I like Norman Fell? No. Do I like Patricia Wilson? Absolutely not. Do I love James Peden? Absolutely, Mark and Al Lynch, some great people. But I'm not taking shots at individuals I went to school with. I mean, the reality is this. When I went to law school, I was going to be a big time civil litigator in New Jersey. And I guess that statement in and of itself will show you how clueless I was. That was the plan. I wasn't gonna do criminal law was going to do civil litigation with Tim McElwain and be a big star in New Jersey. Let me tell you, the last time I visited New Jersey, I felt like it was prison. I had to leave Jersey. It just wasn't me. Everybody's got their own story. For those who have not had great careers at Cooley, here's my... After cool. i would just tell you keep fighting For those are not happy with life life is too short, man You know to the individuals that have sent angry texts about these blogs They're not meant to shoot anybody. This is my story. I'm simply telling you my version of events You can agree with them. You can disagree with them. I Think you know if you know me, I'm not really gonna hold back What I feel is the appropriate thing to say but again, just like I couldn't tell you how to tell your story, sure, it's not going to tell me how to tell mine. And my story had a lot of bobs and weaves. It's been a chaotic roller coaster ride. And I will look at my third term of law school as a launching pad. If I didn't have Jim Peden and Al Lynch my third term, I might have a very different view on my time at old school. I will tell you, fourth term was not quite what third term was. But third term was special. Not a lot of anger in third term. If you want anger, tune in for fourth term. And there'll be some anger coming.
0: the listener and host, contributors, or contributing law firms. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this program are hereby expressly disclaimed.